Hello, my name is Darren. I'm coming at you live from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I am a sustainability and urban planning undergraduate at Arizona State University. Hola, me llamo Jimena. Hello, my name is Jimena, and I'm coming to you live from Portland, Oregon. I am an environmental activist and the creator of Science Saves the World on YouTube. So, talk climate change to me. So, did you know that climate change disproportionately affects low-income communities and communities of color? National Center for Environmental Assessment released a study that states that people of color are more likely to live near polluters and breathe polluted air. They found these results at all national, state, and county levels. And so the EPA defines environmental justice as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. And according to them, that uh, environment, uh, environmental just decisions will be achieved when everyone enjoys the same degree of protection from environmental and health hazards and equal access to decision-making processes to have a healthy environment in which to live, learn, and work, which they don't do majority of the time no and that's what the problem is between like people wanting equality uh, as opposed to equity because equality is kind of technically what we have right now which is that technically any person of any color can apply to any job but that doesn't mean that the employer is going to be fair to them despite the fact that we have laws in place and stuff which is why we need equity rather than equality because equity puts everyone at an evil even playing field rather than having people compete when there's already predetermined biases that are playing against them. Exactly. And like one thing I think that the term equity, well, not the term, but like, what am I trying to say? So when we discuss equity, we think of just human lives. And I think that we need to kind of have a paradigm shift within that to where it'll start to incorporate non-human kin, which like we've talked about before, I'm super big on non-human kin. Um, But because I think they're also included in environmental racism. Oh, well, I, yeah, I guess it'd be environmental racism, even though they're technically not considered a human race, but I think they should be included in that because they're affected by environmental racist decisions as well. Um, but that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> um, and so I think before we get into everything, um, environmental environmentalism, as we know today, uh, it tends to focus on like the protection of like the natural environment and our non-human kin, which usually involves minimizing human presence, sustainable use of natural resources, <laughs> and reduction of pollution, um, which you know is extremely important. But it tends to to, to dismiss um, the equity among people and places as well as um, environmental protection. Or yeah, you know, and equity like you were just discussing. What am I trying to say? I literally just like lost my train of thought. Oh my God. So basically like environmentalism, um, it was born from the idea that we need to protect the environment, you know, because of the way that early uh, settler societies were um, treating the environment, if that makes any sense. I'm trying to like make it seem as simple as possible the way that I'm saying it, but I feel like I'm not explaining it as well. But I think everyone's going to get what I'm saying. 
Yeah, like so. <laughs> kind of like pretty much. It's we started off by degrading the environment, and then we kind of de- displaced all of that pollution to affect the people that we like to push to the back, like you know the minorities that we don't really put a lot of focus on or we're starting to now but like previously they didn't like their rights were a lot lower or a lot less taken care of than those of traditional like european white families and so even in places where they have like really bad um animal agriculture farms uh Oh my gosh, this is one of the most disgusting things that I've ever heard. But apparently some farms in North Carolina, um, they have like these big ass tin sheds where they keep all of like the chickens and like pigs, like each of them have their own like tin, like shed gardens, shed, I don't know what they're called, but they keep them all inside so they can't see the sun. And then they piss and shit on the floor. And they have like the specific like floors that allows all of that stuff to drain into a pool that's right next to that facility. And then those facilities fill up a couple times a day because there's so many animals in there. And then they, the way that they empty those is that they, uh, they put them through the sprinklers. Yeah are typically down or the people of color typically live downwind from those farms. And so all of that piss and shit is like in the air where all of these people are living and breathing and it's causing a lot of like health problems. And of course, the reason that they keep doing it is because the people that live in these areas are very are from typically low income backgrounds. So they really don't have that much money to fight or like do anything on a legislative level. And so like, they just pretty much have to deal with it. And they're doing this on purpose because they know that they can't fight back. Yeah, no, I've heard exactly. I I heard about that too. And like, I know they also have some pools. So when the pools sit there, it, the, um, I guess the, drainage i guess you could say from the from those sheds it seeps into the ground so it pollutes the ground as well so the area around those farms even if they wanted to grow food there it would be contaminated because of those things so that that right there is a form of environmental racism as well because of the fact that like you know people of color tend to live around those communities and they can't even be self-sufficient even if they I mean, they're already self-sufficient, but self-sufficient in regards to like growing their own food. Like they couldn't even do that because of those type of things, you know? Yeah. Like, I think I watched a documentary where like they were actually, it was a family that was growing their own crops and they were told by authorities that they were not allowed to eat any of the crops or any of the food that grew on their property because it was so contaminated. And it's just like insane because these people have the right to like, at least feel safe in their own homes and they're being polluted literally because they're downwind from animal agriculture farms. And so that's another reason that we don't like animal agriculture here. <laughs> I know we, we really don't. They're, I hate how controversial this is too, but like it's, they're one of the leading causes of climate change. But when people hear you talk about that, they think you're attacking them eating me and then they try to come after you. And like whenever I talk to you about it, I'm just like, I'm literally not trying to come after you. I'm literally just saying that this is a problem and here are the facts. You can decide on whatever you want based on that, but I'm not trying to make you do anything. But even when you tell people that, sometimes they're not even going to listen to you, you know? I always do that preface because I'm honestly, I'm at the point where I'm not trying to influence anybody's point of view. I'm simply telling you mine and you can do it with that information what you will, but whatever you say is definitely not going to change my opinion. And if I do at least, 
influence you enough to look up more information, that's awesome. But I'm not like pushing anybody towards a lifestyle because that's your life. I don't buy your food and I don't have your stomach. So none of my business as far as that goes. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think one of the things that um, people, like I guess when people hear environments racism, they don't really know how that ties in with climate change i mean with yeah with climate change because it's like you hear environmental racism and the term itself is very self-explanatory but like you also have to break it down into what exactly it is but you you would when you hear environmental racism unless you know about it like me and you you're not gonna you're not gonna understand how the two are exclusively like mutually exclusive you know what i mean so um i think the way to explain this to people would be that, you know, climate change tends to be um, framed as like just a scientific problem, um, which I mean, for the most part, it is like we both know. Um, but the the problem that is climate change is um, it's a system made up of systems. So there's like subsystems within this major system that work together to fuel the climate crisis. So it's like similar to the engine of a car. So the engine of a car, like... Um, it obviously powers a vehicle, but when there's like a problem that is wrong with a certain part of the engine, that's a certain small system within the system. I don't even know about cars, but I just remember in one of my classes, they were explaining it that way. And I was like, oh, that actually makes sense. So I hope that that like was it, I was able to use that same explanation to help other people understand it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but when you, what, what happens is when you look at climate change is just, one big problem um that's a that's a mindset that is referred to as like the top down view of a problem so you just see like you see the bigger picture which is good but then you don't really understand what exactly is going on within it and so the general public is only informed by the bigger picture so they don't understand the small things that are causing the problem yeah, especially because a lot of the coverage is, again, coming from like white people, which who typically are from more privileged backgrounds. And so they completely glide over facts that they don't understand because they've never been a person of color. And like, no matter how much I can try to explain it to somebody, you don't know what it feels like unless you are a person of color. Because I had a, a coworker literally when I was explaining to him how sad I was about diversity, literally straight up tell me, I wish, like, I wish everybody would just be able to get along with everybody. Like I'm white and I would, I wouldn't mind being around Asian people. And that comment is so problematic because you don't understand what it's like from the point of view of somebody who has brown skin. Because like, yeah, I really do wish that everybody could get along just like you do, but that's not the reality for people who come from, like lower income backgrounds from backgrounds of color <laughs> with culture, with our culture being drowned out by everything else that's happening. And so it's honestly like, it's very hard to try to get somebody who doesn't even understand that basic, like just the fact of racism to even understand environmental racism. Because like I, like we mentioned prior, primarily uh, communities of color are being affected by air pollution more than white people. And so they automatically are on a different demographic and experiencing different things than we are because of the locations where we live. Exactly. And that, that goes back to like, um, 
colonization of the Americas. Because like when they came, they strategically planned out communities to where they were placing people of color in certain areas that were affected by those issues and placing white people in areas that were not because they always had thoughts. Um, they perceived themselves as superior to everybody else, which isn't the case. But that is the unfortunate um, reasoning behind what it, um, the unfortunate reasoning behind uh, the birth of environmental racism, you know, and um, there's like, there's a few principles of environmental justice, which is, um, a, it's, a, it's a segment of environmental racism, but that I felt like I wanted to um, touch on. Uh, one of them is that public policy should be based on mutual respect and justice for all people, which, as you've seen, that isn't the case in a lot of um, public policies that have uh, come into play within the past couple of years. Um, it also mandates the right to ethical balance and responsible uses of land and renewable resources in the interests of a sustainable planet for humans and non-humans, um, which what uh, him and I was just, what we were just talking about with the, um, the farms in North Carolina, like that right there is, um, you're not giving the right to responsible uses of land in the interest of a sustainable planet for humans and non-humans because of the fact that that land is getting polluted um, because of, you know, the farming. Mm -hmm. um, and then this other principle, which I think is really important because that's going to kind of bring us into the, um, our guest speaker who's going to talk about an issue right now, um, is that uh, environmental justice considers governmental acts of environmental injustice a violation of international law. Um, which I know our current administration doesn't like to uh, discuss international law in regards to the United Nations, even though that that's all I'm going to say about him. Because, yeah, <laughs> there's not that that many positive things that yeah, we there, go down there, that road from. <laughs> it really isn't. Um, but so we do have a special guest on our show today, which I'm really excited, and I know Jimena's just as excited. Yes. Um, and so uh, she's, they're actually going to bring light to an environmental racism issue that's controversial in the media, but it's a perfect example of what environmental racism is uh, and what an environmentally unjust abuse of governmental power is. Um, so this particular issue is uh, violating the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the United Nations Conventions on Genocide, um, which if you don't know what those two things are, uh, I would suggest looking them up. Um, it would take a really, really long time for me to explain those to you, which I would gladly do, but I don't think you want to sit here and listen to this podcast for probably like, what, like two hours, I'm assuming? Yeah. <laughs> yeah we could save that for to be its own episode. <laughs> yeah, we could literally have an entire episode dedicated to just that. But we know that you all are going to um, really enjoy our guest speaker because we, we are very, very excited to have them on here. Um, so, Yeah. So today we're going to be discussing environmental racism and the impacts it's going to have on the southern states of the U.S. And uh, we're actually going to be talking with a really, really good friend of mine, um, Honmana Supeoma. She's a member of the Tanawatam Nation, and she's also a documentarian. 
Hi, everyone. It's very nice to be here with all of you. And thank you to uh, Darren and Jimena for having me on the show today. I am a member of the Thonautham Nation, so I'm currently residing in Tucson, Arizona. And I am working on a short documentary about Altham opposition to the border wall, just because a lot of outside media, you know, international and national media doesn't really ever um, dig deeper into why Altham opposed the border wall. You know, usually you find a lot of them trying to get their point across, get their story, get it turned into their editors. You know, it's, it's never very in-depth or handled with care. So that's what I've been choosing to work on for the past uh, over a year now. That's amazing. And I've seen some of your work and like the things that we've discussed, obviously, like outside of the podcast and like in person and everything. And you're actually really inspiring to me. Um, Thank you. (laughs) I also um, have ran my own YouTube channel for the past five years now. So that's definitely been a very big push for me to do like to step into documentary work. What decided what uh, made you decide to start your channel? My channel started back in 2014 when I was at college. I'm a first-generation college student, and it was very hard for me to navigate the the system. Like, that's very bureaucratic and um, not made or set up for people of color to survive and succeed. So I was feeling very homesick, even though I was just an hour away from home. But just being in a new environment without... um, my own people around me really made me miss home. So a way I was able to push myself to, to connect with my people again was online through YouTube. And that had been something I wanted to do for the past five years before that, (laughs) all throughout high school. So I finally got the push and I did it. And I've been on the platform helping to cultivate a native YouTube community because what my biggest passion has, what I've discovered it to be, has been um, accurate representation of native rep- natives in the media. So like accurate native representation. And so I realized that we can't, you know, wait on Hollywood or like mainstream media to accurately portray who we are, what we do and what we want. And we have to start doing it ourselves. And one of the most cheapest, like efficient, um, most accessible ways that people can do that is online and through social media. So YouTube was a platform that I went to. And, you know, back then in 2015, 2014, when I was barely getting on the platform, I knew all of native YouTube. We could count each other on our hands. And now I can find a new native YouTuber every day of every week, which is exciting. That means it's growing. That means it's working. That means people are realizing how important this is to represent ourselves. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And I definitely agree with you like that. We can't wait for the mainstream media in Hollywood to bring about the um, accurate representation for us because they're never as as sad as it sounds they're never going to do it and so we have Mm -hmm. to do it ourselves you know it's true 
So before we get into the topic, I think it's like really important that we kind of establish um, the grounder for, groundwork for where we're going to be heading, uh, because like environmental justice is a big issue, but it's also very different when it affects indigenous people because of the fact that the political the political circumstances that were put in um, they uh, for, I guess they differ drastically from other ethnic ethnic minorities because of the fact that our connections predate settler state um, that is currently known as the U.S. Um, so a lot of the the connections to like our territories and our cultures and our homelands and everything have been here for time immemorial, which is very different than those who are not, I guess, how am I, what am I trying to say? Whose ancestors are not from this continent. You know what I mean? Yeah, like even when I was doing my research on environmental racism, the main two groups that they usually highlight are Blacks and Hispanics, which I'm Hispanic. Um, I, I'm Hispanic. And like, it's just crazy because you guys, you, you're you such a small portion of it, but you guys are more impacted by things because you guys try to stick to your territory and the government is constantly trying to take it away from you and trying to repossess it and use it as something else. And it's just not really talked about. Like I couldn't find much on it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a problem. Um, it all just kind of has to do with settler colonialism. Uh, like um, environmental justice is a really big form of settler colonialism because it's linked with like the larger issue of indigenous erasure, um, which is kind of built in it's, it's built in, it built into the very foundation of this country, you know? And it kind of forces you guys to like even more be a voice for your people because like she said, nobody else is like the, what is it, the mainstream media isn't going to pick up and tell you guys, your guys' story. Or even if they do tell it, they're not going to tell it accurately. So it has to come from straight from you guys for it to be as accurate as possible. Exactly. Um, which I think ties into, which I guess the topic that we're going to bring up today is it's very good that we have Honmana here, um, who, whose uh, traditional territory lies on the border because this is, it's, I mean, it's affecting all border states, but this is affecting her nation in a very particular way compared to uh, non-native, non-native communities on the border. Um, and so Honmana, I would just like to, for you to just kind of explain like what, I guess, what exactly is going on within the region um, and how it's like affecting your nation? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to kind of backtrack because okay. this has been happening ever since um, the Gadsden Purchase, which went, I believe was in eight, the 1800s. And this was the uh, purchase that made Arizona a part of the United States. So it cut our nation in half because our ancestral homelands, these unaltham ancestral homelands, um, range all over southern Arizona into Mexico and um, to the Gulf of Mexico. So what the Gadsden Purchase did was cut our ancestral homelands in half. And then, of course, with the the reservation system being... um, established that made us bound to this uh, small parcel of land compared to our our original homelands. And so Tucson, modern day Tucson, Arizona is a part of those homelands. Um, 
um, lands in Sonora, Mexico are part of those homelands. And right now on our reservation, we have tribal members living there. We have tribal members living all over the world, but we also have tribal members in traditional villages right across the border. So for me, my grandpa was actually from Coloca, Mexico. And um, we would always go and cross the border and visit every summer and just be there with family. My favorite part was, of course, going to Rocky Point because we got to go to the beach and it was just a wonderful time. But uh, ever since 9-11, you know, there have been increased militarization tactics and um, actions that have taken place on our reservation. So, you know, with 9-11, of course, increased security you can ask someone who's maybe a couple decades older than me, I'm 24 now, um, what it was like when you didn't have to go through TSA, uh, when you went onto a flight at the airport. They remember people's families were able to walk them to the gate to get on their plane. Well, for us on the reservation, we could just freely leave our, our res go to Tucson to buy groceries, go to Casa Grande to buy groceries. But now in present day, um, you have to go through a checkpoint every time you leave the reservation. So any exit or entrance, you have to go through, you know, speed bumps, the speed trackers. Um, if it's nighttime, there's lights that are on and there's always like um, infrared um, gadgets that watch every car that crosses through to make sure they can see your, your the body heat in the car, you know? Um, and then you pull up to the checkpoint and there's a border patrol agent stationed there. And they ask you if they're, you, if you are a U.S. you are a U.S. citizen and if everyone else in the car is as well. Um, and a lot of people who tend to go through these checkpoints are tribal members. So I grew up at a time where I lived on and off the reservation a lot when I was growing up. So I'd never really took note of how, how foreign the concept is and how bizarre it is that you have to go through a militarized checkpoint where dogs are sniffing your car and there's armed agents around and cameras watching you um so much surveillance and you have to be asked if you are a citizen of this country well uh this is our our land <laughs> and you're on it so why should i have to prove my citizenship to you you're not from here you're not awesome. You're not native. You're from some other place, somewhere else, and you're here interrogating me just so I can leave and go to the store and buy groceries for my family. Like that, those are the things that kind of became normalized when I was growing up. So now as an adult, I didn't realize this wasn't okay until older people in my life started talking about how this never was the norm. And now we have children growing up today who don't know any different, who don't know that this isn't what it's supposed to be like, who don't know what it's like to just leave your res because you want to and come home and not feel like you're being watched or you're being followed or you're going to be harassed. And that's just like 
the bare minimum interaction that a non-autumn can have on our reservation because a lot of people get to freely pass through because there's a lot of racial profiling that happens whenever you have an interaction with the border patrol agent. So when you ask about what's going on on the Don Alton Nation in regards to the border wall, one of our fears is increased militarization. So I described to you just a simple interaction that can take place daily, weekly, monthly for a lot of different tribal members. And you already have people who have more violent stories than that. I have a more violent story. My, a lot of people in my family do. So everyone has a story, whether, it's, whether it happened to you or a family member or a friend or someone in your life, everyone has a story about violent encounters with border patrol. So when you talk about building this border wall, you talk about non-Altham construction workers coming into our homelands, into our reservations, our village, our villages, our districts, our communities. You also talk about more border patrol agents and more federal agencies coming to quote unquote patrol these borders because, you know, in the sake of national security, which when you think about it, there's no true reason why a physical border wall should be built because there are always going to be other ways that people innovate <laughs> to get what they want across the border. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot. There's a lot to impact there, but that's just a, a small glimpse that I was able to share with you about what's happening in um, just on the reservation itself. That doesn't include current border wall construction actually happening on autumn homelands to the west of our reservation. Have there any? Have there been any people that you know of that have been detained by border patrol, like unjustly through these um, checkpoints or anything? Oh yeah, uh, you get. A lot of agents who just, you know, feel like they have power because they do, um, because they have a badge, because they have that uh, agency to hide behind and because they're not from here. So there's no accountability. Um, And a lot of people, like I said, have stories. And so one of the more violent stories actually happens, you know, tends to be detainment. Um, I have family members who were detained um, unjustly. I have family members who were detained because they were doing illegal activity. Um, but even then, they were mistreated. So there's just very little regard. Um, I have a story from a very close family member of mine who I recently got um, permission to film them and this interaction that I heard about when I was a kid, um, a family member had told me that they had been arrested by the border patrol and they were going to go to prison. But luckily they were able to beat the case and um, they didn't have to. So as I was starting to think about this um, short documentary I want to work on about all the opposition to the border wall, one of those is trying to figure out how to portray, you know, this border violence, this like uh, 
increased militarization and the negative effects it will have on all of them here. Um, how to portray that in one of the most powerful stories I would think I could think of was the story about my close family member. So, you know, after all this time, I'm like 20, I turned 24 this year and I finally asked them, you know, is this true? So they sat me down and told me all the ins and outs of it. Um, basically, they were getting harassed by these Border Patrol agents and they had violently um, brutalized them. So my close family member said that they were in fear of losing their lives. So they fought back. And because of that, they were charged with two accounts of federal assault on federal agents. So what that meant was that they were supposed to go to federal prison and become a felon just for defending themselves when no one else was around. The only thing that saved them was the recording that the Border Patrol agent's um, car was taking and the case did get thrown out. But, you know, this close family member does a lot of very important community or like community-based work. And um, they work with so many, so many different agent, ages in the community. So if they would have been charged for those two accounts on of assault on federal agents they would still be in prison right now you know they would never be able to do the work the important work that they do that's very positive for our community their whole lives would be completely changed like for less positive you know outcomes and so that's just one example one example that you know, I finally got permission to to be able to sit down and talk to an interview and record, and hopefully, um, the end product will be in my in my movies, my movie, my film, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's just one example, and there's so many. There's so there's more that are more violent. There's more that have more higher stakes. There's more that are more frequent and less violent, you know? It's, there's just a very large spectrum. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. That That's definitely a lot. Like, I was getting emotional just hearing that because it's not... I When I hear the way people get treated in those type of situations, it makes me very angry, um, especially when it's other Native people, you know, because, like, I... I don't want to say anything else because I'm going to just get really emotional. Like I feel like <laughs> right now, but I'm going to not cry because mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. Um, but yeah, I I don't. I think like there's a lot of majority of people in our country right now. They don't really understand how it's affecting um, Native people uh, and especially just the southern border in general. Um, and like what I think one of the big things that I noticed when I was kind of reading up on the topic before we started talking about this was um, one of the, uh, I guess, one of the ways like the wall is g- going to impact the like the natural environment, um, which it already did before uh, was during the, the Bush administration. There was like a, the fencing that was through mm-hmm. the, the Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was in 2008 when there was, there was flooding and like debris got stuck on the fence. So there was like a pool of seven or eight feet of water there. Mm-hmm. If I'm not too sure if 
of, of the specifics of it, but I did read up on that. And um, obviously with climate change, the storms are going to get worse and the flooding's going to get even worse. If, and with that border wall, especially with, I guess, how big it's supposed to be, it's just going to be very, very, very detrimental to the people who live along the border, as well as like um, all the different, um, all like the biodiversity within Southern mm-hmm. Arizona, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and it's true. It's true because it's already happening. I mean, one of the the big things that people talk about is this, like, like washes that run across the border. Um, those flow freely. Like, they, you, water does what it wants when <laughs> yeah. it comes down to it. It's going to always do what it wants. And so even then, you know, with the, the Bush administration, you know, 9-11 happened and this big hysteria over national security took place, um, uh, physical border barriers were established across the border and um one of the things was these washes like you you can try to put these you know vehicle barriers and they're they're those things that look like um jacks you know that you play with you Mm -hmm. play jacks they look like that but they're like huge and very heavy and so those are the vehicle barriers and i believe that they tried to put some along the wash one of these big very large washes here uh, on the border on the reservation and like it it didn't work like they would get washed away or you know it just it was it there was no point to it and so the other thing that is uh very directly related to uh Altham homelands and you know our our history there is this small spring out in Oregon Pipe National uh Oregon Pipe practice national monument <laughs> and it's a it's a traditional Alton spring that has been there for for a long time and um that is uh i just call it Altham homelands but there's a very there's a four i would say well three different variations of Altham. so worth on Altham, which just means desert a uh, desert people the hono meaning pe- uh desert i'm sorry all the meaning people so there's another part of us who are yachid all them and yachid meaning sand and all the meaning people so yachid all them you know they were in that territory for a long time and um they credit you know some of their survival to that uh that historical autumn spring there called Pito Paquito. and so I actually got to visit there in August because there was a lot of talk about uh, border wall construction starting the week after we were visiting. And um, one of the things that people were afraid of was that the spring would be used to mix, you know, the cement and all the materials that are needed for border wall construction. So uh, it didn't start the week after, but being there in that place was it was very beautiful you're in the middle you're in the middle of the desert and it's so dry there's no you know running washes unless the monsoons come there's no lakes there's no nothing it's just all dry and so you go to the spring it's beautiful and there's uh endangered species there already um and some of which only survive there they're nowhere else in the entire world um so there's this, uh, I believe it's a mud frog 
who lives there and that's the only place it exists there's also another type of fish that lives there and so you're talking about killing off these already endangered species just to build a border wall that won't actually combat um any smuggling any drug running any whatever people complain about the border for um because i don't really care (laughs) i don't it's there's there's i don't care in the sense that this border wall is not going to do anything to combat it really um so even exactly so you have that spring that's being it's just not even like a hundred feet from the border so I'm pretty sure that they're going to end up using that water and dry the spring. Um, You also have the construction people taking about, I I think it was like something like 20 or 30,000 gallons of water a day from our aquifers. So our underground aquifers. And, you know, this is, um, this is, to help sustain all the people who live there on the, on the reservation. And I don't know how long it's going to take to replenish those aquifers, but that's how much water is being taken from us like every day, just to mix concrete and build that border wall. See, and like, that's, that right there is a form of environmental injustice because of the fact that like they're taking water sources from you all and it's literally just for the construction of a stupid border wall. It makes no sense. And I think one of the bigger, like to build off of that, um, I think what a lot of people don't understand is that the, the construction that's going on, they, um, they're not required to meet. I think that there's like 20 or 30 plus federal environmental laws that are include the endangered species act, uh, the national environmental policy act, the clean air act and the clean water act to name a few. Um, they can just kind of like ignore all of those just to to build this wall, you know, mm-hmm. and um, which kind of goes back to what you were saying, how there's a lot of endangered species there that are just going to be completely disregarded. And there was something that you said that really um, stuck out to me that I want to kind of talk about a little bit more um, is how you were saying that 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 is autumn homelands and how that helps sustain um, your people and everything. And I think one of the big things that most settler societies don't understand is that the thing that distinguish distinguishes us from them and I, I don't not as like a divisive like oh it's us against them type thing but just in general is that um and I I use us lightly because I don't know what it's like to grow up on the reservation I didn't grow up traditionally I'm still reconnecting so I don't like to take up space when I'm not in a place to do so, you know what I mean? Um, but is the fact that uh, indigenous people, they, um, like we have unbroken connections to the lands that our people are from. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. We've been here since time immemorial. And um, right now I, that might be like a really hard concept for non-natives to to understand and just to be very blunt like you never will um it's taught to us through our traditions our stories our songs our creation stories so from 
the time that we were younger, if we had, you know, the the privilege of having elders or parents or adults or even, you know, siblings in our lives who could share our cultural heritage with us, you know, those are the, the, the main things that tell us who we are. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the connection to the land. So I actually went out to the first protest here held on Autumn lands against the border wall. And um, that was this like a weekend ago. And there, there were these signs that they had on, well, people had printed them and they were holding them out. And there are 41 laws waived to have the border wall built. So another one of those is the uh, Native American Graves and Repatriation Act. Um, Oh, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, American Indian Religious Freedom Act, uh, the Wilderness Act, and uh, so many more. But I, I know I heard 36 or something at another time. And so I, I think as time goes on, <laughs> the law the law waivers are just increasing. And, you know, those are set in place to protect ourselves from ourselves. And here we are. Um, waiving all of them to have this built. It's just a vanity project. Like it literally means nothing. It's just for his base so that they can shut up about it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, at least he's in his impeachment hearings right now. And he literally committed another impeachment offense during his impeachment hearings. So if Republicans can grow some balls, maybe something will happen. Thank you. I hope so. Uh, Hopefully it's it's all on the Senate because I genuinely believe that he will get impeached by the House. It's just all about if the Senate wants to grow some balls and actually talk back about it because <laughs> he's broken so many laws just building this construction project and throughout his presidency. Like when he was elected, there was like what two weeks of straight protests. Mm-hmm. Like on his 100th day in office, there was a whole bunch of protests. And I don't know how it took this long to find an actual impeachable offense. I actually went to one of the protests protests after he what, he took office in Austin. Um, and that was probably the largest protest I've ever been to. It was very, very overwhelming. I lost majority of the friends that I was with. I lost them because there was like thousands upon thousands of people and... It, it it was it was really nice to be around people who um, also are against those type of people um, like Trump. Um, but it was also overwhelming, you know, because of the fact that they're overwhelming as far as like emotions go. Because there's so many people who are against what's going on and against de- degradation of the environment and against um, indigenous erasure and all these different things. But yet these things continue to happen when there's so many of us who are against it, you know? It's because so many people are complicit. Like what us, like what we're doing right now, you have your YouTube channel where you're bringing up Native issues. We're talking about other environmental issues and we're taking action in a way. There's a lot of people that can just retweet and sit back and just be complicit and just be upset that this stuff is happening, but do absolutely nothing. And so I think that's kind of why it's taken so long because there's so much inaction. We just want to like what is what is the word accept we just want to accept that this is happening when honestly like it shouldn't be happening we should be doing exactly this like speaking out talking about it showing up 
like representing what we want to happen. Mm-hmm. And holding our representatives accountable. Um, that's something that I definitely was able to learn more about um, becoming more civically engaged because of, you know, all of these things that are happening that this administration is um, putting forth into our society. But I was um, actually able to spend time in Texas this last, I want to say in the summertime, um, to stand in solidarity with the Carrizo Comicrudo tribe of Texas. Um, and they are the another border tribe, actually, who has actually like physically occupied this um, traditional part of their homelands that the border wall is going to be, it was proposed to be built through there and it was their cemetery. So they stood up and um, decided decided to occupy that space. Um, I want to say I heard about this for the first time last year. And so, so they were having a protest um, to stand against ICE and um, ripping families apart in the detention centers. And so they were able to organize a protest right outside of a detention center, like a a couple blocks away. So it was really nice, but um, just being there and hearing from those tribal members and leaders, they were telling us, um, because they work closely with uh, the Butterfly Center, which is also another uh, place that is being... Um, heavily surveillanced because of their opposition to the the border wall construction as well. So they kind of work together. And um, one thing that one of the directors at the Butterfly Se- National Butterfly Center was telling us is that uh, it's it's a very hard thing to follow, but it, it's all it all makes sense, and I still need to m- get more information about it. But Basically, Trump, um, you know, he owes all this money to people in Russia. And the one of the best ways he has been able to put together in his tiny little brain is to get this border wall built and use, you know, these companies from Russia to help build it. So all this steel and all of these panels that are coming into the country you know, when I went to the border this last weekend, there are these like 30 foot steel like panels that they are basically going to put up like next to each other. And all of those are coming from that company. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how he's using government money and tax dollars to pay for his debts to those people. Uh, so it's infuriating all around. <laughs> No, it is. No, 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 it really, really is. And um, that the tribe, I I can't remember the name you were talking about in Texas. I actually, there's a gentleman, I can't remember his name because I had a, I don't know, no dapple protest in uh, San Antonio when I lived there. And there was a couple people from that tribe who came out and they were super, super sweet. And I remember them talking about that issue with me as well. Um, I wish I could remember his name. I'll, I'll have to look, I have him on Facebook. I'll look him up and then I'll see if maybe you met him. (laughs) Um, But something that like, so I've been reading this book called As Long As Grass Grows, which I'm sure everybody knows I've been talking about it on Twitter forever. Um, But there's something that I, a quote that I want to read in here from Dr. Julia Whitaker. Um, She put that 
in indigenous worldviews, there's no separation between people and land, between people and other life forms, or between people and their ancient ancestors whose bones are infused in the land they inhabit and whose spirits permeate place. Um, which I think that in itself, if you think about what that means for us and what they're doing to the land, they're not only affecting our non-human kin that are there, they're not, they're not only affecting our people, um, but they're affecting our ancestors and our future kin, um, which includes human and non-human life forms. Um, and I think that's a big, I think that's a really big thing that is kind of um, disregarded in regards to this environmental injustice issue um, and something that I wish um, more uh, non-Native people and more people who are focusing on this issue would kind of take into account, you know? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I was able to look up that company and it's uh, Evra's Still. So that was the company that those people were talking to us about from the National Butterfly Center. So... It's definitely something I've been wanting to look into, but yes, back to your, <laughs> your quote. It was really good. No, no, um, but I, I agree. I want to actually look at that company now. Because <laughs> it feels very conspiracy theorist, but also like what's a conspiracy theory at this point true. when all of it is basically <laughs> came out to be true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is true. This is very true. At least one like lighthearted-ish story that I've heard about the construction of the border wall. I think I heard it on The Daily Show, Trevor Noah, is that they were there was actually people on the other side of the border that were stealing supplies. I love it. <laughs> they, were putting, like, they were fencing their own houses and stuff with the supplies from the border wall. <laughs> And stealing different tools. So at least we're getting something. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Who are they? Because I want to make them some earrings. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, I love love them already. I don't even know who they are. (laughs) Everyone start stealing these supplies, please. Yeah, go build a house with them. (laughs) Well, I mean, we probably should do that since, you know, we have a lack of housing in the affordable housing in the U.S. So Mm -hmm. you could use that. Just go down to the border and steal what you need to build your house. (laughs) Exactly. Literally. (laughs) And I was hearing stories, too, that people were, like, able... There was a... What was it? He was trying to build it with like steel, wood, and some other material. And he was saying like, oh, it's indestructible. And then somebody was commenting that like, no, like they literally just broke a hole in the wall the other day, like with some some power tool that they bought at the store. And and (laughs) over here like, oh, but it's indestructible. Like it just proves how dumb, like the concept. (laughs) No, one funny thing I did here at the protest this weekend, um, I was like, you know, very emotionally distraught because it was a very, you know, very heavy and deep moment for me to witness that. And um, I was kind of like, I heard it at the back of like in my head. Well, not in my head, but like just like very faint. And someone had said metal gloves and metal shoes. And then I kind of like snapped out of it. I was like, wait, what are you guys talking about? (laughs) (laughs) They, the, the, my roommates, we were all going back here to Tucson together and they were laughing like, Oh no, someone had made the comment. All you have to do to get over the border wall now is uh, have metal gloves and metal shoes. to like climb it (laughs) like, Oh my God, this is like just the concept. It was very funny. I'm like, thank you for saying that. I needed to hear that. 
No, he was like legit, like floating around the idea of putting like alligators and crocodiles. Oh God, like, I remember. That is so dumb. Like one, how are they going to survive in a desert? And two, like, <laughs> where, are you gonna, where are you going to get this water from? Like we're in a desert. And all like, these crocodiles. <laughs> I know, like, well, I guess the snowbirds in Florida would be happy that their little dogs wouldn't be endangered since that's, that's probably their little dogs. From. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> because logic doesn't exist. I know. Not in this presidency. Right? Haven't you heard? Neither does climate change. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. It's just a Chinese hoax, right? right. <laughs> Native American Heritage Month doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> Who is she? I don't know her. No, we don't remember. No. <laughs> no, no, Christopher Columbus. <laughs> Ew. Oh, uh, no. Oh. That's, that is the person that shall not be named. On this podcast. <laughs> <Yes>. Never. <laughs> As a matter of fact, he's banished. The C word. <laughs> the C word. Yes. <laughs> That's my new C word. <laughs> if I hear you say a C word, I'm slapping you. That's it. No, I'm just going to say literally the phrase, the C word. That's it. <laughs> Did you say the C word? And then before you can respond, slap to the face. Or we could also say the CC word to not can get confused with the C word. Itself. No, that, that way, that's... Oh, yes. That way you do confuse it because they're the same thing. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Very valid. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. been so fun talking with both of you. I'm really excited to hear about your podcast and all the work that you're doing. And I'm uh, very happy that you were able to have me on. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was, mm-hmm. I, I was very excited when I, when I, when I, when we were having that picnic in Tucson and I just like, was like, oh, this would be a good idea. Like, I'm really happy this worked out um, because I liked hearing what you had to say and, um, you know, bringing up this topic and how this really does tie in with climate change and everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And I'm really excited to hear or to watch your film whenever it comes out. <gasps> thank you. Really- really it's, want to watch it <laughs> it was supposed to be done by the end of this year because i i'm with the fellowship right now working on it but really i don't think it was supposed it was meant to be finished by the end of the year you know with mm-hmm. everything that's happening now um with the first you know physical border wall protest happening on all the homelands um I am very fearful that things will get more violent and uh, just a lot of a lot more brutalization happening to uh, Altham tribal members. So that's something that I always keep in mind as a lot of allies, you know, want to step forward and support us and occupy these spaces in order to stop border wall construction if it comes to the point where you have to physically occupy that space um i just think about the people you know my people and what's going to happen to us because at the end of the day everyone else can go home you know wherever they're from but uh we always have to be here because this is our home so that's something that i shared recently uh, on a post that i had shared online and i always I think about this time about two years ago when the president came in. I don't like to say his name, but <laughs> he came into office and uh, the January right after that, he signed the executive order to have the border wall built. And so there was this hysteria happening 
at home on the res and all the communities and families and villages and um just wondering what that means like oh is construction starting tomorrow like what what are we gonna do and standing rock had just been um you know basically evicted there were a lot of arrests made and a lot of brutalization and of course militarization in that space and so a lot of people are afraid like do we have to stand up and what is that going to look like for us so I remember there was this panel discussion with tribal leaders and our chairperson um, had just come came back from Standing Rock because uh, our nation sent a caravan up there of like a lot of people and supplies and everything and so he said he was talking to their chairman and their chairman told ours you know you know trump's coming into office and uh, border wall construction will start so if you ever need us just make the call and we'll all be there to help you and we'll stand with you and when he said that like the whole room fell silent and this was standing room only in our um legislative council chambers and we just all like collectively thought about that reality. And so finally the chairman was like, but that can't happen here. We can't have Standing Rock happen here. And it was kind of like a sigh of relief for everyone because we were all thinking the same thing, like, no, that can't happen here. And so logistically, if he was talking about if that happens, it's more like, you have a bunch of non-Altham coming into this space and into the middle of the desert, it, uh, it gets like an upwards of 120 degrees in the summertime, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, you, have, you have people exposed to the elements, you know, meaning rattlesnakes, hill monsters, um, animals, you know, the biodiversity that's just existed there because we let it and you have all these people coming in to stand in solidarity with us but you also have one hospital that serves all the members so it's you know not a huge hospital you would find in the city um within like an hour or two from the desert itself so there were there's no infrastructure to support a mass of people like that and there will have to be a mass of people that are needed to stop border wall construction if it ever comes to the Donald nation and so being at the protest this weekend you know it was a good feeling to hear allies there and see them and physically be in that space with them but it was just also like wow we did everything for this past two years to make sure this didn't happen and here we are. And so it's kind of, for me, it's a little scary because it feels like the calm before the storm because I don't know what's going to happen. But um, I, I guess in a way that's back to my original point, um, that's why my short film was probably not supposed to be finished by this point. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I still have a lot more work to do, which, you know, I'm happy to because I I want us to be able to tell our own stories because that's what we deserve and we should be doing. But I'm excited for you to see it whenever it comes out. <laughs> I'm excited to watch. I'm going to be your number one fan. Okay. I mean, I already am, but... <laughs> 
So, I mean, as you all heard from Juanmana, um, it's very apparent that the border wall is going to adversely affect um, the Tanawatam nation, um, on the Tanawatam people in general, uh, because, you know, as Honmana mentioned, that they are on both sides of the border. Um, and it's also going to adversely affect uh, the biodiversity in Southern Arizona, Southern Arizona and Northern Mexico. Um, and I think it's really important that um, we talk about this uh, because by engaging in these conversations, um, we're able to acknowledge that environmental justice and injustices um, are not only involving humans, but also our non-human kin, uh, which for those of you who don't really understand what non-human kin is, um, it includes soils, plants, waters, waterways, um, animals of all kinds, including insects, those different types of things. Um, And I think we really do need to challenge this notion that environmental justice and injustice only affects humans uh, because non-humans are disproportionately affected. Um, and this isn't to say that humans come second. It's just um, simply place, placing non-human kin as equal um, and that they're requiring the same protections as us, you know? Um, and I mean, thus far, if you've been following our podcast, um, I'm sure you can tell that our conversations are very much biocentric. Um, and biocentric ethic-based conversations call for a reevaluation of the relationships between human and non-human kin. So when we relate climate change to environmental and social justice, we're able to better examine issues relating to biocentric equality, human rights, animal rights, indigenous rights, and our responsibilities as caretakers of this planet. Um, and so... And so I just, I want to give a special thanks um, to, to Honmana for joining us tonight um, and, you know, revealing her story and um, everything that not only she is dealing with, but her people and those in her community, um, because I know that that is not something that's easy to talk about, um, which, I mean, you all heard me in the podcast. I actually kind of got emotional just listening to it. Um, and so I just, I really wanted to say thank you to her for that. Yeah, and thank you so much to her. This is the first time that I met her, and she was great, and I'm glad that she was able to share all of that stuff with us. Uh, if you want to follow her on Instagram or Twitter, I will leave that those um, I will leave her usernames in the comments down below on the YouTube and the Spotify channel, and I will link her um, her YouTube channel in the YouTube description of this podcast. So thank you so much for listening. Um, we hope that you were able to learn something from us. Um, and please be sure to subscribe to um, Science Saves the World on YouTube. Follow us on Spotify, iTunes. And please, please, please don't forget to share this on all your social media platforms. We will catch you later. Right, bye. Go hug some trees. <laughs> Half of the